Take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. That song is, is such a great reminder of... The fact is, is that it's not us that's holding on to our salvation. It's Christ holding on to us. And so often we think, oh man, I've got to hang on, I've got to hang on for dear life, and Christ is the one who's doing the work for us. I failed to mention earlier, you'll see over here in the annex, in the back of the annex, there's a board uh, that is um, lists a, a description of those who have passed away from our church this year, so I encourage you to go by and see those and remember those who were a part of our congregation. Judges chapter 4 is where we will uh, be this morning. We've been going through a, the, the series of looking at the judges that are listed here and in, in Scripture, and, and the last few judges we went through in great detail each aspect of the story. This story we're going to look at today is too long, so we're not going to go through every little uh, nuance of the story, uh, and so I want to discuss the story in whole and then look at some smaller details. The Bible is filled with all different kinds of um, books and, and writing styles and writing genres. Um, I was just reading this in our, in our family devotions last night, how there's different kinds of styles in the Bible and they all come together. There, there are poems. Uh, we see those in the Bible. There are letters, especially in the New Testament. Uh, there are narratives. There's stories. And even in the, the narrative style, I believe there's different kinds. Judges chapter 4 and 5 kind of unfolds like a Shakespearean dramatic play. You remember when you were in high school and you had to read plays, and I remember reading plays, and, and uh, the teacher would preface it by, by going through each character and describing the character and, and telling us who they are. And so I want to do that this morning. I want to take some time and look at the characters in this story, and then from there talk about an overview of the story. And then after that, I want to focus in on just one character and talk about him. So who are the people involved? First of all, we have this guy named Jabin. Jabin was a tyrannical king. He was, he was evil, he was, he was nasty, he was powerful. He was a Canaanite king, and he, uh, he was uh, the one who came in and began to rule over the Israelites. And we have a woman by the name of Deborah. The Bible tells us she was a prophetess, and it describes her that way, but then it goes on to say that she was, she was ruling as a judge over Israel, and she would sit, and people would come to her, uh, and they would hear her judgments. We have a guy by the name of Barak. He was the Ju uh, Jewish general. Uh, we'll get into him more, actually, in a little bit. And the next one we want to look at is Sisera. Cicero was Jabin's general, and he was a, a, a powerful general, and the Bible describes uh, his army as saying that he had 900 chariots. That was, would be uh, a, a powerful army. You'd have foot soldiers, but on top of that, to have 900 chariots would mean great power. There's a guy mentioned, and really there's not a lot said about him um, and, and other than uh, his relations, but uh, Heber was, was Jabin's uh, a neighboring ally. He would have been someone who, uh, who was not a Canaanite per se, but he was a Kenite, and he was, uh, but yet there was a peace treaty be between him and Jabin, and so therefore because of that, they got along, and uh, there was a good relationship there. And then the last one we want to mention is Jael. She was Heber's wife. 
and uh, we'll get into her more later as well. But I need you to see these kind of overview, and as I begin going through the story, I'll leave this up here so that you can be reminded who these individuals are. You have to remember, as we've said the last few weeks, that this was a period in Israel's history that involved repeated cycles. The cycle went like this. There was rejection, there was reprimand, there was repentance, and there was redemption. And what would that? The people of Israel would reject God in favor of false gods, in favor of false deities of many different types. And then God would reprimand them, and he would do that by allowing some foreign tribe, some foreign king to come and conquer them and harass them and rule over them. The Israelites would eventually repent and, and they, would, uh, they would cry out to God and God would appoint a new judge, a hero, that would bring them back to victory and ultimately redemption. This cycle repeated itself over and over throughout the book to the point of by the time we're done with Judges, you're going to get tired of hearing this cycle talked about. We come to the fourth chapter and we see that this cycle began again. Look, if you will, at Judges, and I'm going to read, but I'm going to read in different stages here. Judges chapter 4, it says in verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. I want to pause there for a moment. Remember, Ehud was the one we talked about two weeks ago. Um, After Ehud, there was a period of of peace. And then the Bible says uh, in verse 31 of chapter 3, Shamgar, we talked about him last week, um, and I said this last week, but I believe Shamgar was a contemporary of the judges, of the individuals we're going to talk about this week. So he did not bring permanent peace. And so that's why it says here, after Ehud, because they would have followed simultaneously. And the Lord, in verse 2, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned at Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Haggaiim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. He treated them very cruelly, and there was this horrible time for Israel. And so, as was the cycle, there was the the rejection, uh, and uh, there was the the repentance, uh, the reprimand, the repentance. and, And so when they repented, they called out to God. And so what did God do? We see there is a, a woman who comes on the scene, and I already mentioned her. She was the, the heroine of the story, the prophetess by the name of Deborah. Now, if you notice, she was already serving. Look, if you will, at verse 4. It says, Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Libidoth, uh, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. So this was a normal occurrence, that they would come to her, and she would rule on different subjects that was taking place. And Deborah comes and and, uh, sees what's taking place, and the Bible tells us she goes after this warrior, Barak. And she sends Barak a message and says to Barak, The Lord God of Israel has commanded you to mobilize 10,000 men. If you read the story on, he says 10,000 men of the tribes of uh, Naphtali. He was, one, he was of the tribe of Naphtali. And so Naphtali and Zebulun and, and lead them on a charge to Mount Tabor to fight against Jabin. But notice, uh, God doesn't just say do this. Notice what he says in verse 7. This is God speaking. He says, And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And then notice the last line of that verse. And I will give them into your hands. 
So God comes to, uh, to Barak and says, I want you to go, and, and uh, Barak kind of hesitates, and so Deborah comes and says, didn't God tell you to go? But God says, I will do it. So they, they go out and, and uh, they begin to fight. And you can see the reaction here of what Barak says when Deborah comes. He says in verse 8, And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will send Sisera under the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak. You see, they, they go, but... She goes saying, you know what, this isn't what you were supposed to do. You know, Barak kind of gets the rap as being the, the, the wimpy judge. The guy who wasn't willing to stand on his own two feet and he had to bring Deborah along. We'll get more into that later. And so they begin to go and they, they go out with their plan. He gets the 10,000 men and he goes out and they begin to to uh, go and find Sisera. And so Sisera hears about this and he comes and he begins to fight. And the battle begins to happen. Notice, if you will, down in verse 14. It says, Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this day is the Lord's in which, uh, has, which the Lord has given Sisera in your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tibor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his armies before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So they come and God gives them this victory. And it's exciting. The, the people are fleeing and Sisera, this, this mighty, wicked general, is fleeing and he's running and he runs and he comes to his neighbors. And you look on the chart there. He comes to his neighbors, Heber. Remember Heber? Heber was a, was a friend. So it makes sense that he would go there um, and and there, it's a possibility, and we'll look at this later, but it's a possibility that Heber was actually fighting with Sisera. And so he comes to this home uh, looking for uh, solace and safety, and, and he's greeted by uh, Heber's wife, Jael. And she says, I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. Of course, we read the story, and I'm not reading every verse, but if you read the story, the Bible tells us that she was deceiving him she brought him in, and he says, can I have a cup of water? And she says, how about I give you a cup of milk? Kind of make him a little more sleepy. She then takes him and allows him to go into uh, her tent, and he was exhausted from the battle, and the Bible tells us that he falls asleep. Well, look what happens next. Look at uh, chapter 4 and verse 21. Again, this is another one of those stories that uh, would be probably PG-13 or R-rated in a movie. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And this next three words are the most obvious words in Scripture. So he died. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> you know, the tent peg wasn't like a little tiny thing. This would have been a massive tent peg, and going through his head, I think that would have done him in. Then it goes on and it says, and, and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, a jail went out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. I'm sure this was not what Barak expected, to walk in and see him nailed to the ground. That's what he saw. And he says, and so they went into their tent, and there he uh, lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jaden, the, Jabin, the king of 
Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. You see, the, this is an interesting story as we read through it. Lots of twists and turns. As I said, this could have been a Shakespearean play with various acts and various turns and twists that you don't expect. And, and here we come. And this would have been, the outcome wouldn't have been what you would have expected. And he didn't expect it. He was going to his, someone who was an ally, and yet he, he ended up dying. And this is a story that has a lot of interesting parts. And today I want to focus just on one person of this story. And, and we could focus on Jill and, and how courageous she would, was. And we could focus on Deborah and, and who she was. But I want to take some time and just focus this morning on Barak. Because I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from this guy. Before we begin, let's pray. God, I thank you for this time we can come and look into your word. Lord, it's easy to see these stories and see the interesting details of these stories, but Lord, if we, as we've studied this book, we realize that you gave us these stories for a purpose, for a reason. So Lord, I pray help us to learn from Barak. Help us to learn from this guy that you actually called a man of faith. Lord, help us to see how you used him despite his weakness. Lord, I pray that you help us to apply these truths to our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever heard the expression, he really dropped the ball? Any of you ever heard that expression? Okay, we've used that expression many times. Maybe you used it to describe someone who failed to, to complete an assignment. Maybe you used it to describe a, a co-worker who didn't do what he was supposed to do. Maybe you used it to describe a child who failed to do their chore when they were supposed to do it. But the origin of that story actually dates back to 1941. And it was actually dates back to a baseball game. It was the 1941 World Series, and, and uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers were going against the New York Yankees, which was a big deal. And the two of them were facing each other, and it was game four came along, and at this point the Yankees had won two games, and Brooklyn had won one game. It was a best-of-seven series, first team to win four. It was game four, and, and uh, the Dodgers were actually doing well. It got to the ninth inning, the bottom of the ninth inning, and they were leading four to three. It all seemed like it was, it was a done deal, and it came up, the batter was up, there was two outs, and the batter had three balls and two strikes. All he needed was to throw a strike and strike the guy out, and the game would be over, and the series would be tied 2-2. The pitch came in, and uh, the batter's name was uh, Tommy Hendricks, and the pitch came in, and it was a swing and a miss. Ball game over, right? No, not so. The catcher dropped the ball. If you're not familiar with baseball rules, which I'm finding more and more people aren't, if it's a third strike and the catcher drops the ball, then the, the, the batter has the opportunity to run to first. And if he gets to first base before the catcher throws the ball to first base, then he actually is safe, even though he's struck out. It's a very odd rule in baseball, but it is a rule. So the catcher drops the ball, and as it drops, it hits his foot and goes off to the side. So he runs after the, the base runner, runs to first base, and the ball gets thrown, and he's safe. So it should have been the end of the game, but it wasn't. And from there, things just go downhill. 
The next batter gets a hit, and the Yankees end up winning that game and end up winning the whole series. And, and the phrase started from that moment called that said, he dropped the ball. And that became known as, as something that was a thing, and it was done by a guy by the name of Nicky Owen. Mickey Owen was actually a really good catcher. In fact, he set a record that year in 1941 as, as having the most errorless fielding opportunities by a catcher. 508 times he had caught the ball without an error. He was an all-star for the fourth year in a row, and he became known as, as a, an outstanding catcher. But he was always remembered as the guy who dropped the ball. The Bible is full, filled with ball droppers. People who, who had a task to do, and because they did not complete the task, it affected everything around them. And several ball droppers can be seen through the book of Judges, and we'll talk about some others. But one of the most imperfect ball droppers is this guy, Barak. We look in Scripture and we see him, and he's known as the guy who had to have a woman by his side in order to succeed. I want to look at just a few uh, ideas about Barak and, and see some lessons that I think we can learn from him. First of all, we see about Barak is that he argued with the commands of God. The commands of God. In reply to Deborah's message, Barak said this. He said, I will go if you will go with me, but I won't go with, if you won't go with me, I'm not going. And this was no, is known as one of the biggest blunders of all of Scripture because he should have gone on his own, but, but he didn't. And Deborah says, I will go with you, but you need to understand that if I go, the glory will not go to you, the glory will go to a woman. And that's in reference to jail. But let's try to comprehend for a moment what's going on here. Barak had received his orders from, the, uh, from, from God himself. I believe that he had received them from God. If you look in chapter 4 and verse 6, notice, if you will, what it says there. In the middle of the verse it says, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? I believe that Barak had already received a message from God, but he was dragging his feet. He was kind of thinking, I don't know if I really want to do this. And he was hesitating. And so uh, Deborah uh, was told by God to go talk to him. So Deborah goes and says to him, hey, wait a second. Hasn't God already told you to do this? And yet he did not follow through with the command of God. And the, the mobilization, the building up of the army of Israel and the defeat of Sisera, this was something God had told him to do. And yet he defied the command of God. He was only willing to, to obey the direct command of God on his own terms. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted to do it his way. And he said, fine, I will go if you go with me. Did he need a woman by his side to fight? No, and I'm not slamming women. It was just a statement of he was the leader of an army. He could have done this, but he didn't. He wanted to call the shots. He wanted to be in charge. But isn't that the way we often are with God? And I think if we're honest, we can really sympathize with Barak. You know, he was being called into a very dangerous situation, and it's only natural to, have, to want to have some sense of control over the situation. And many of us struggle to gain control in our lives when all God wants us to do is let go. And really what it comes down to is Barak wasn't really willing to surrender himself. What is surrender? Surrender is willingly submitting my will to the will of God. 
And Barak was saying, I'm not willing to do that. My will is I do not want to go alone. I want to go with someone else coming along my side and holding my hand. And God said, that wasn't my plan. God wanted him to surrender. I heard a a story that uh, uh, Charles Swindoll told of a young college student who was struggling to stay focused during his college years. He went to a secular college and he was he was struggling with peer pressure, and so uh, he went to his room one day, and he decided he was going to do something to remind him to follow God, and so he took six three-by-five cards, and on each one he wrote a letter, and he lined them up on his ledge, and, and when he lined it up, it spelled, Let God. And it was a reminder to him that he was to constantly let God do. And he had one particular day where he was really struggling and he went into his room and he was was struggling with that. And he looked up at that and just as he looked up, the, the story goes that the wind blew in his window and it blew off the last letter. And so it said, let go. And that became his motto of let go and let God. And that is the idea of submission. It means letting go of your life and allowing God to take control. And that is the first step of genuine faith that a believer has. It's saying, God, I'm no longer going to live my life, but I'm going to let you live my life. That's why it says in in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That is saying to God, God, here am I. I will do whatever it is you want me to do. You know, presenting ourselves as a dead sacrifice may be a challenge, but in some ways it's easier. A living sacrifice says, I'm going to get up every day and do what you want me to do, God. But all too often, we want to be in charge. We want to be the commander of our own destiny. We say to God, God, in essence, what we're saying is, my will be done. And that was Barak. But a genuine faith means uh, to, to learn to let go and let God take charge of our life. And only when we fully surrender to God can we experience the fullness of life that He has to offer us. Barak's power play here revealed a lack of faith. It revealed a lack of trust and resulted in the loss of glory and honor for him. Rather than being the, uh, given the honor of personally defeating the, the enemy, Sisera would be killed by a civilian woman who probably had never picked up a sword in her life. But I think there's a lot more to Barak's story. We look at the guy and we say, here's the guy that didn't have the ability to to do what God wanted him to do. But I think there's a lot more to that story. And I I, want to look at a couple more points that I think kind of shine a different light on him. Secondly, I believe he relied on the leading of God. Yes, Barak made a monumental error. He dropped the ball. But take the time to consider and look at what uh, Barak actually demanded and what was his motive for it. While it's true that he didn't do what he was supposed to do, and in, in a way he overstepped his bounds by asking that Deborah accompany him, why did he ask that? Because I believe he asked that because it was, he, he was looking for God's leading in his life. You see, the Bible tells us in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says, Deborah was a prophetess. She was, the, the, at this time, the mouthpiece of God. 
They didn't have the Bible as we have it. They didn't have the ability to look at passages that set, where God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, or passages where God says, I will be your fortress and stronghold. He didn't have that. And so oftentimes their, their reliance on God, their, their, their um, learning from God came from the, the teachers and the, the prophets and the prophetess in this case. And so that means she was the direct divine revelation from God. And so God would have spoke through Deborah and Barak didn't want to make a move without her there. And I believe it's because his desire was he wanted to uh, follow the Word of God. And the nation of Israel had, had at that time had abandoned God's Word. They had ignored His commands. That's how they ended up in this mess in the first place. And Barak was probably not wanting to make that same mistake, and so he asked her to come along because she was God's mouthpiece. You know, I think he responded differently than, than other people we see in Scripture here. And we even look in the book of Judges. We'll look uh, uh, soon into the story of Gideon. And what did Gideon do? The Bible tells us Gideon was hiding from God, hiding from the enemy. We look at the story of Samson. What did Samson do? Samson sinned so many times over and over and over again. He turned his back on God. We look outside the book of, uh, of, uh, of Judges and you see someone like Jonah. God told him go and do. And what did he do? He ran the opposite way. And so I, I, I don't believe that, that uh, Barak was doing uh, anything that he thought was wrong. He was, he was looking for God's leading in, in his life. In fact, the Bible tells us that he did in fact engage the General Sisera. He did, in fact, do what God had told him to do, and, and he went and he fought just as God has, had ordered, and he defeated uh, Sisera just as Deborah had, had announced. I don't believe today that we have modern-day prophets and prophetess like they did then. I don't believe God gives the revelation the same way that he did then to individual people, but we have his word and just like Barak was, was hoping that maybe Deborah could give him more word, uh, we have the word of God. And that's why uh, it tells us in, in Psalms 119.105, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And God's word is, is living and active, which separates it from the, the legends and myths that uh, others were telling. It's living and active. But just mentally accepting the facts of this book is not enough. Genuine faith depends on us following it. And that's where, that's where Barak struggled. And having a Bible that maybe you have that sits on your bookshelf and, and collects dust all week and then you pick it up to come to church on Sunday is not uh, displaying a genuine faith to God. Does this book, does the Bible matter to you enough that you dive into it week after week? The Bible is more than just a history book. It's more than just religious rules. It's God's revelation of who He is. God's revelation of His plan of redemption for us. His plan for the universe. It's a story of God's relationship with mankind and His matchless love for us. And for Barak... He didn't know how to, how to do it other than having the mouthpiece of God with him. And maybe it showed a lack of faith, but also believe that it showed his desire to have, have God's word with him. And that leads to the final point that we want to take some time to look at. 
And that is Barak delighted in the worship of God. He delighted in the worship of God. Look at chapter 5, if you will. The battle is over, and what we see here in chapter 5 is, is heartfelt worship. And genuine faith always leads to heartfelt worship. And the Bible tells us that after the battle was won, Deborah and Barak joined together in singing a song of praise. Singing uh, was very common for the Israelites after a victory. It's something you see throughout the Bible in numerous places where you can see where they would do that. This, this song, based on the pronouns, as you read through it, you see the different pronouns that are used. This song was a song that was uh, probably written by Deborah, but yet uh, in, in the passage here it tells us that they sang it together as praise to God. It was something that they knew because they realized that, that only He could give them the victory. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Only He could give them the victory, but not only that, only He was worthy of praise. In fact, the word worship is a word that it was derived from Latin which means worth-ship or worthiness. You know, this year we're celebrating as a church our 150th anniversary. And as we look back, and yesterday I uh, met with the, the Heritage Committee and we were talking about some of the things that we're doing this year, and as I met with them and, and they were telling me stories of, of, of our history, and it just, uh, it just, for me, over and over again, I'm reminded of the goodness of God and how God has, has worked in this church uh, for so many years, and it is, it, and he is the only one worthy of praise. It's not because of uh, any staff member. It's not because of uh, any deacon. It's not because of any Sunday school teacher alone. It's because of God. And this is the theme throughout all of Scripture that God is worthy of praise, and 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 they understood that, and so they sang praises to him. We see those listed, and, and we see um, in, in uh, Judges chapter 5, if you will, notice verse 2. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Hear, give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. And that was their theme. And if you, uh, really, there's, there's 30 verses here of praise, but if you were to sum it up in three words, it would be that phrase, praise the Lord, because over and over again, they're reminded that it's not just them. It's not something they did. It's, it's what God did. And we'll look at some more examples where they constantly went back to God because they understood uh, what was said years later in Revelation where, where the angels said, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise because it's only God who is worthy of praise. And Barak delighted in that. And Barak loved to, to praise the name of God and they worshipped, him and Deborah worshipped and praised God because they knew he was the only one that was worthy of praise. And so they praised God, but then specifically they praised God for the willing Deborah and Barak take the time in their, in their song of praise to praise those who have stepped up. Twice the word willingly was used. We read in verse 2 where it says that, look in verse 9, it says, My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. We see in verse 13 it says there, Then 
down marched the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord, marched down for me against the mighty. They understood that the willingness of the people to come along and fight. This was a huge effort. And interesting as we read through, and we're not going to read every detail here, but as we read through in this song, they gave details of what was involved. Six of the tribes were mentioned as being involved in the fight. Look at verse 14. It says, From Ephraim, their roots, they marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kingsmen. From Machar, that is a city that was in Manasseh. So that's a mention of Manasseh that was involved as well. It goes down. Then it says, and from Zebulun, four tribes were mentioned there. Look at verse 14. It says, the princes of Issachar were involved. And so it mentions, though, and I already mentioned to you that, uh, that uh, Barak himself was from the tribe of Naphtali. So six tribes were involved. Now what's interesting, and I'm not going to go into this right now, I, I challenge you to read this later, but you go back through and it mentions the, uh, the other tribes that weren't involved. You have to remember, this was a time, what does Scripture say? This was a time that man did what was right in his own eyes. So the other tribes decided that it wasn't necessary for them to come. Some of them was for legitimate reasons, some of them it was because it was just a decision of their hearts. And so Deborah and Barak praised God for those who were willing. Because those who were willing stepped up and they were able to win the battle. And thirdly, he praises the Lord for the victory. They understood that it was the Lord who gave them the victory. Notice, if you will, at, um, chapter 4 and verse 7. I, I made a point of noting this earlier, but it says at the end of verse 7, and I will give them into your hand. They understood it was God. You say, okay, we understand that God gives us the victory, but it's more specific than that. Look, if you will, at chapter 5 and verse 21. Chapter 5 and verse 21. It tells us there in that passage, and what you have to remember as we're reading this is that um, this was a song, and so song, like a poem, sometimes um, is not crystal clear in the details because that's not the intent as details. But notice, if you will, verse 21, it says, The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. What's the significance of that? Well, here's the significance of that. Remember, as I said, uh, Sisera was, was fighting with 900 chariots. Now, it's believed that the time that this took place was during the dry season of Israel. And so uh, chariots would, would be a great tool, but during the dry season it would be even better because they could go anywhere. The ground would have been hard and, and they would have been able to run around and they could even go on the, the river beds and they could have done that. But this passage tells us that, uh, and, and as a study into this passage, it tells us that this was a time where, where, for whatever reason, it was a very rainy season. And the torrents would have came in, as it describes there, and, and it would have filled the valley, and the, the Kishon Valley would have been filled uh, with water, and so that it would have actually neutralized the chariots. It would have neutralized them, and it would have made them so they were not able to, to be as effective. And I believe that's why, remember we read about uh, as, as they were pursuing, and what did, what did Sisera do? He got off of his chariot and ran. Why would you do that? 
If you're trying to get away from the enemy, you would stay on that um, thing that is faster, wouldn't you? But he didn't. He got off. And so uh, it, it's, it's very possible that maybe his chariot was stuck in mud. And so when they said here in this passage, they said, oh, the battle is from God. God gave us the victory. Uh, there's a real sense there that, that, that was, it was the weather that caused that. And that's an interesting thing to note. I want, to, I want you to point out one other thing about uh, this item. Look at verse 23, if you will. It says, curse Meraz. And what was Meraz? Meraz was a city that was a part of the tribe of Naphtali. They chose to not come. Now, who cursed them? You notice in that passage it says, cursed Meraz says the angel of the Lord. It was not Deborah and Barak that cursed him. It was the angel of the Lord. Uh, why did they curse him? Notice what it says. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now, I, I'm not pointing out, uh, that out to say that they were cursed, but I'm pointing that again to note the fact that Deborah and Barak acknowledged something. It wasn't them fighting the fight. It was the Lord. Because it didn't say in that passage uh, that they were cursed because they didn't come to the aid of, uh, of Barak. It says they were cursed because they didn't come help the Lord. They didn't come do what God wanted them to do. And so they are again praising God for the victory. And then finally, they're praising the Lord for the courageous woman. If you look in verses 24 through 27, it talks about how uh, they were praising Jail, and it specifically says she's blessed for her part in what takes place. Verses 28 through 30 are interesting because it is, um, if you notice there, it's now um, describing the uh, words of the mother of Sisera. Um, and what does it say there? It says that she uh, waited for him to come home, and he didn't. But then we see the final part there in verse 31. They close their, their song of victory with this, this verse. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Then notice it says, and the land had rest for 40 years. He ends, they end their song of, of rejoicing with a praise to God. And in this praise to God, they contrast the enemies of the Lord who perish in darkness to the people who love God who rise like the noonday sun. And that comparison go, finds its way throughout all of Scripture. The idea of those who are, in, are, are wicked are in darkness, and those who, are, 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 who love God and follow God are in light. And we see that over and over again throughout the Scripture. In fact, in Ephesians it says, Therefore do not become partners with them. And that describes in previous verses the wicked. And it says, what does it say? Uh, For at one time you were like them. What were you? You were in darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, walk as children of light. We see that theme throughout all of Scripture. In the end, Barak actually proved to be a man of faith and ultimately a hero. And we look at him because he dropped the ball in the beginning. Mickey Owen, the baseball player, dropped the ball and because of that, even though he was a skilled player, he was never admitted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. But Barak, on the other hand, dropped the ball, and yet he was still elected into Faith's Hall of Fame. 
We're not going to look there, but if you were to look at Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith, and it lists all the individuals who God declares are full of faith. And as you look in that passage in verse 32, there's a mention. All it says is his name. But there's a mention as, of, of Barak as being a man of faith. And he's listed there along the likes of Abraham, Moses, Joseph. And what's the difference? And ultimately, what's the difference between uh, uh, why he was accepted into the hall of faith? And I believe it comes down to this. Because God forgives imperfect people. Maybe you're here today and you have dropped the ball many times. Here's, here's the, the great part. is We all have. There's not a person in here that hasn't dropped the ball at one point. And maybe you've made more uh, of your fair share of mistakes. Perhaps you've resisted God's leadership in your life. Perhaps you've You've, you've forgot to, to, to read the Word of God. Perhaps you've sinned in some great way. Perhaps you've rejected the, the Word of the Lord. Perhaps, and, and the list could go on and on, maybe it's a number of things that you have done where you have turned your back on God. And, and the cool part about it is that just like Barak, just like God used him in a great way, just like he was a man of faith, yet he struggled, but God uses him. Why? Because I believe God uses fragile, broken people. That's why the Bible tells us that it says that He does not use the strong. He uses the weak. He does not use the powerful. He uses the weak. He does not use the rich. But he uses the poor. He does not use the proud. He uses the humble. I think there's many Christians, and I think actually this characterizes the majority of Christians who struggle in life because they don't think they're good enough. They think for some reason that the mistakes that they have made disqualify them from being used by God. And yet here in this story, we see a guy who dropped the ball. He messed up. You know, and if we talk about Barak, we often point out the fact that he went out and he couldn't do it alone. And we chide him for that. And maybe it's because we're, we're kind of attacking his manhood. But whatever reason, we look and we see yet, yet he was a man of faith and he accomplished, although he didn't get there the way God wanted him to, he accomplished the task that God had for him. And he praised God and he glorified God. And, and later on, Thousands of years later, God recognized him as a man of faith. So my question is for you this morning. Is, are you allowing God to use you? Are you surrendering to his will despite your brokenness? Because God wants to use you even in your imperfect nature. And I challenge you to allow him to surrender. Let's pray. God, we thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you use imperfect people. Lord, even as I was preaching this message, you know my heart. Lord, I felt fragile and broken. 
But yet you ask us, Lord, to be willing and surrender to your will, to do what it is that you have us to do, not because of our strength, because of your strength. Lord, I believe that many of us Christians, we struggle with thinking we're not good enough to serve you. And yet when you call us to serve you, just like Barak, we, we have the ability, we have the strength to do it. But Lord, I pray that you help us not to, to sit idle because of our weakness, but to step up and, and gravitate towards your strength and allow you to work in our lives. Lord, we, thank, we are thankful for this story. We're thankful for the lessons we can learn from Barak and, and, and how you used him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.